Well, good morning, Chapel family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. I've probably told this story before, so just if you've heard it before, just you know, play along with me, give a sympathetic smile and laugh, and some of you might say, well, what's new with that? Just kind of always give me a sympathetic smile and laugh. But uh, Jack fell off a steep cliff, a cliff that towered a thousand feet above a rocky valley. Fortunately, as he fell off the cliff, he managed to catch a single branch that was sticking out of the cliff. Clinging to that branch for dear life, he called out, Help! Is anybody up there? A booming voice came thundering out of the sky. It's okay, Jack. I'll help you. Jack was shocked. He said, is that you, God? Yes, Jack, it's me. Wow. God said, now, Jack, just trust me and it will all be fine. Let go of the branch. Jack looked down at the rocks below in the distance, (laughs) way down there. And he called out, Help! Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) While most of us probably wouldn't want to admit it, we probably have felt at least at times a bit like Jack. We hear what God has to say about what we should do or what we should think. And we wonder, can I get a second opinion? (laughs) As we come here to Genesis chapter 22, we come to the last photograph in our album of Abraham's life as we've been going through his this study in his life. And we could, we could well understand as we come to this chapter why Abraham might think such a thing as, excuse me, God, can I get a different opinion? The story is one that is familiar to most of us, but one which we do well to rethink and reexamine because it is a powerful passage that is bigger than our time bigger than our minds can fathom. Matter of fact, before we before I read it, let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing this morning. Lord, we come to a passage where we need Your help. For Father, the, the truth that is behind this passage, the truth that is here is deeper than we can understand and it is perhaps more difficult than we want to deal with. We need You to illumine our hearts this morning. We need You to guide the stammering tongue of this woefully inept speaker so that we might together understand Your Word this morning. And more than just to know what it says, that we might let it 
transform our hearts. So, Father, may Your Spirit use Your Word to touch us deeply this morning. For our good and for the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Genesis 22. I'm going to read the first 18 verses this morning. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. He arranged the wood on it and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord... It will be provided. In the last chapter, chapter 21, Isaac was born. Abraham was a hundred years old and the chapter closes a few years later as, as Isaac is weaned. Here in chapter 23, we fast forwarded the video a bit. And God gives Abraham an unthinkable command. 
sacrifice your son. There are actually three commands in here, and they're not suggestions, they're not requests, they're not, hey, Abraham, think about this. But they are stark and shocking commands. Take, go, and sacrifice your son. As parents, most of us love our children more than we do our own lives. With the exception at times, moms and dads, and we have teenagers in the house. When they're 14 or 15 and we think, get me the rope and the knife. (laughs) And there are times when our kids, when they're teenagers, that they would say, if I have to listen to another lecture from my parent, I'll just tie myself up and plunge the knife into my own chest. If we take that aside, most of us really know that we love our kids more than we do our life. In an instant, we would give our lives for our children. Stand beside the hospital bed of your son or daughter when their life hangs in the balance. A good many of you have been there. I've been there with my son. I've been there with my grandson. If there were any possible way we would switch places with them in a heartbeat. That's why this passage and this command strikes horror into our hearts. To deliberately take the life of our child, it's unfathomable. And yet God says, Abraham, go, take, go, sacrifice. Almost as stunning and unfathomable as that is Abraham's stunning obedience. As we've traveled this journey over these last couple of months looking at the life of Abraham, we have seen that he has had some stumbles. There have been times he has tripped and fallen in his faith. But still he has demonstrated tremendous faith in God. And here is the pinnacle. Immediately he obeys. Says he left home. It was the next morning. Early the next morning he arises. He begins to prepare for the journey and the sacrifice. He obeys not only immediately, he obeys certainly. Interesting, there is no record here of if if he questioned at all what God asked, if he argued with God at all, if he had any doubts, if he none of it is recorded. Rather, it's God speaks and Abraham gets up and he obeys. God said it. I'll do it. He not only obeys immediately and certainly, he also obeys personally. There's no delegation here. You notice it says he got up and he saddled his donkey and he went out and started cutting wood. He's over a hundred years old and early in the morning he's out cutting wood. 
Shocking not only because of his age, but shocking because if we remember who Abraham is, he is one of the wealthiest people in the land. Hundreds of servants. This would be like Donald Trump getting up to go on a trip and he goes out and changes the oil in his car and loads the car himself, packs everything, does all the work, makes all the preparations. That's why he has employees. But Abraham doesn't delegate anything. God said, Abraham, you do this. Abraham does it himself. Marvelous faith that he obeys and does this. This is, as one pastor called it, the Mount Everest of faith. Uh, Quite frankly, I'm not there. I think if a voice from heaven called down today and said, Keith, go sacrifice your son. Go sacrifice your grandson. I think I'd be like Jake. (laughs) Is there anybody else up there? Is there a second opinion? I don't know if I were in his sandals that I could have done this. But I'll stand back (laughs) and I'll point you to the mountain, to Mount Everest of faith. We can all look together and admire that and say, wow, that's where we need to be. God speaks and we jump and we say, how high, Lord? Not only is it an unthinkable command and a stunning, obedient faith, but there's another thing that jumps out at me off of this page. It's a cooperative son. You know, most of us, though we've heard this story many times, we may know this story, we picture Isaac as a young boy. There are some traditions, some Christian traditions, which place this, this account and this event immediately after the closing of the previous chapter, chapter 21, when Isaac is just weaned and he's only, you know, a boy of three or so. Our English Bibles tend to give us that impression. The New International Version, which most of us read out of, some of you have the ESV. In verse 5, it says, I am the boy. You go down to verse 12 and it says, Do not lay your hand on the boy. If you have the King James Version or the New King James Version or the New American Standard, those all say the lad. When we hear the lad or the boy, we think of a little tyke. You'll note that the two people who come with Abraham, the two servants, it calls them here in the New International Version. If you read almost every other translation, it reads the young men. The interesting thing is the word for young men or servants and the word here for boy or lad are the exact same word in Hebrew. So why is it young men over here and boy over here? gives us the wrong impression. In other words, here Isaac could not, might not be a boy. He might be a man, a young man. Matter of fact, I would venture to say as we look at the text, he cannot be very young. For if you look at verse 6, as, as this little entourage gets near to the place God has said, Abraham sees in the distance 
And he stops the party and he tells the young men, the servants who have come along, he says, you wait here and I and the boy, actually we could say the young man, and I will go ahead. And then you know what he says he does. He takes the wood for the sacrifice. How much wood does it take to burn a burnt offering fully and completely? All of us who built fires, we know that's not just a little, you know, one of those little packages they sell for $200 at the you know, grocery store, you know, your all-night fire. <laughs> It'll probably take about three of those to have a, or four of them to have an all-night fire. And that's not enough to burn a, a full sacrifice. It's a lot of wood. And he says he takes this big bunch of wood and he puts it on the back of Isaac, who carries it to that distant place that they see in the distance, and it's a mountain and he's going uphill. This isn't a little kid. This is at least probably in his mid-teens. Matter of fact, there are traditions, Jewish traditions going very ancient that have Isaac here as in his 30s. One of my favorites is that he's, they say is, is there's one tradition that says he's 37. The reason that they say that age is because that's the age that Isaac was when Sarah died. And Sarah, they say, died when she heard the news of what went on on that mountain. I think that one was kind of made up. I don't think that's what really happened, but I think that was made up by a Jewish mother. <laughs> so what? You trying to kill your mother like Abraham and Isaac <laughs> when they came home? Yeah. But I think it's intriguing to think that he might have been in his 30s. One of the traditions has him at 33, which is interesting. I think he is probably here a young man. As they're going along, he has questions. Where's the lamb? We brought the fire. And you have to remember in those days, you don't have matches. They carried the fire with them. Usually a, a coal packed in a way you can read survival stuff and go back to the American Indians and learn how you carry a coal so that you can always start a fire. He's carrying the fire and he's carrying the knife and Isaac says, where's the... And we've got the wood, but where's the sacrifice, Dad? Where's the lamb? You know, even in an area that's parched and and not exactly forest, it's probably still easier to come up with wood than it is to come up with the lamb. And I'm breaking my back carrying the wood, Dad. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's response is, the Lord will provide. It's interesting, two times, both in verse 6 and later in verse 8, it uses the phrase, the two of them went on together. The, word, the phrase in Hebrew is, Hebrew is literally this, the two went in agreement. In other words, it's not just that the two were happened to be walking alongside of each other together. It means that they are going together in agreement. They are of the same mind. They're on the same page. Isaac trusts his dad. By the time you have Abraham binding Isaac and putting him on the altar, Isaac has figured out what's going on if Abraham hasn't already told him. So why do I say that Isaac is a cooperative son? The two are in agreement. They're of one mind. 
Isaac is not a young child. He is a strapping youth or young man who is strong and powerful and dad is a hundred years plus however old Isaac is. So if Isaac is 30, Abraham is 130. If Isaac is 15, Abraham is 115. And I had a hard time whooping up on my 15-year-old when I was 40 years old. I don't think Abraham has a chance if, I, if Isaac is not cooperative and he's figured out what's going on or he knows what's going on. Isaac is willingly allowing himself to be bound and put on the altar. His faith here is as remarkable as Abraham's. Now, two intriguing questions. First intriguing question to me is this. Why would God give this unthinkable command? Whenever you read this story, or maybe when you read it today, some of you may have heard it for the first time today. Others maybe have heard it a hundred times, but it's troubled you every time you've read it. How could God do that? Why would God do that? Why would God tell Abraham or anybody, go kill your son? Doesn't that seem out of character with the God we know on the pages of Scripture? Let me give a couple of answers why. First reason is this. I think it is exactly in order to be for Abraham and for everyone who follows, it is to be a demonstration of God's nature. You see, the the Canaanites, the people who lived in the land at that time, they practiced human sacrifice to their gods, little g. It was common in the land. This is not here to suggest that God might require this sacrificing your son, your daughter, of you or of me. Rather, it's here for exactly the opposite reason to ultimately demonstrate that God, the living true God, is not like the God of the pagans. Or the God's little g, I should say, of the pagans. The living true God asked this one man who is the ancestor of the Israelites and who is the father of all who believe, as Paul says, this one man at this one time to sacrifice his son. And then as he was about to, God dramatically intervenes and prevents him, stops him, prevents the culmination. See, God didn't require Abraham or anyone else to kill their son. Rather, later, God makes it crystal clear to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 18, When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. This is why we can know for certain that God would never ask you, never ask me, never ask anyone to do this again. No one can use this story to justify killing or attempting to kill their 
children. Because God has clearly commanded against it. And Abraham's story clearly demonstrates against it. Just as God prevented Abraham from following through. So, it's to demonstrate God's character. That He's different than those pagan gods. But there's more than that. Verse 1 tells us something of why God did this. Verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. This is a test. As Abraham has been following God's promise all the way along, that's been our theme through this this whole series, has been following God's promise. As he's been following God's promise, Abraham has been enrolled in God's school of faith. Faith has required Abraham to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, high society in Ur of the Chaldees, great sophistication, great comfort. I don't need to say anything else other than Ur of the Chaldees had hot and cold running water in their homes. That's how sophisticated it was. And Abraham left to be a nomad in Canaan living in tents. Faith required him to leave his father's house, his relatives, and all that is familiar and secure to go to the unknown and the strange, to the land that God showed him. He had to let his nephew Lot go. He had to let his he had to let Ishmael go. And now this is the final exam. Will Abraham take the son that he loves dearly, whom he waited on so long, and Sacrifice him simply because God says so. See, what it is for us is it's a picture of what the life of faith is all about. The life of following God in faith is a a constant growing process of letting go. Of yielding and submitting everything we know of ourselves. Everything that we love. Everything that we have. All that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. That's ultimately what the life of faith is. Yielding everything that I, I know of ourselves, or that I know of myself, to everything I know of God. At first that might sound like bad news, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I'm supposed to yield everything to God and give up control and, and let it go. But it's just the opposite. See, To love God is not just the greatest command. It's also our great purpose. It's what we were made for. To love and have a relationship with God. And and so to to find our ultimate joy and our ultimate fulfillment, we find that when He is all to us. When He is our all. When He is our first love. Why would Abraham obey this command? We asked, why would God give it? Why would Abraham obey it? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a clue as we look there, a passage that we know well, but let's look at it. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. See, 
This passage tells us what Abraham was thinking. What is Abraham thinking? Number one, this doesn't make sense. (laughs) Actually, that's the whole thing. This doesn't make sense. God told me that I'm supposed to kill Isaac as a as an sac- and sacrifice and burn him as an offering. Okay, but on this side, God has made promises to me, promises of offspring and and of offspring that is as numerous as the stars and as the sand, and a nation and kings. But not only has He promised that, very specifically. He said it comes through Isaac. Back the last chapter, chapter 21. These promises come through Isaac. And Isaac has no children yet. He doesn't get married till the next chapter. So if Isaac dies, all the promises fail. And yet God says, kill him. God says, two things that don't fit together. What do I do? Well, I don't know how these fit together. It's what Abraham is thinking. But what do I know? I know God's character. God always keeps His promises. What else I know? God's power. God is capable of anything. And Abraham expects a miracle. (laughs) If necessary, God will raise the dead. So therefore he reasons, I'll obey even though I don't understand it. And I'll trust God to work it out. That's what Hebrews tells us Abraham was thinking. Faith acts and lives according to God's commands and promises, not according to God's explanations. Because God rarely gives explanations. He gives us His commands, His promises, His Word. We see it back in this text here in Genesis where Abraham tells the servants, he says, we will go and worship. And did you notice the next pronoun? And we will come back. This passage here in Hebrews that we just looked at has a second answer to our first question. Why would God command this? A marvelous little phrase in that passage I'm going to back it up just so we can see it. If you look in that last sentence, Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead and figuratively speaking. It's an interesting phrase because what it really says, and you'll get this when I tell you the Greek word that's there. Some of your Bible translations may say speaking as a type. The word in the Greek is parabole. Sounds like parable. What's a parable? It's an illustration. Speaking as an illustration, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, the point is, what we're seeing there is why did God command this? Because it is an illustration. It's a picture of something that God is going to do. And what we have here in this in this account, in this incident in the life of Abraham and Isaac, is God painting a picture showing what He's going to do one day. 
Look at the comparison between the sacrifice of Isaac that we see here in Genesis 22 and we fast forward 2,000 years to Jesus Christ and there are dramatic parallels. Both Isaac and Jesus are dearly loved by their father. Both Isaac and Jesus carry the wood of their sacrifice on their shoulders. Both of them are sacrificed, and here's a shocker, on the same hill. Say, wait, Jesus was crucified on Mount Calvary, and Isaac is offered here on Mount Moriah. Interesting, Mount Moriah is only mentioned twice in the Scriptures. Here in Genesis 22, the other place it shows up is over in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1 where it says this, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. You see, Mount Moriah is the mount of the temple. The mount of the temple, if as you look and it goes behind the temple and it goes up and as the city stretches out a little bit and, and many scholars believe that Jesus was crucified just east of the Damascus Gate, which is where the hill rises up and that is Mount Calvary, which is part of Mount Moriah, the very same hill. And both of them, both Isaac and Jesus are delivered from death on the third day. Jesus rose on the third day. Isaac is... It's on the third day of the journey and Abraham counted Isaac dead when he left the house. And on the third day, as the Lord stops the knife, Isaac is delivered from death. It's a picture. Not only is it a picture that looks backwards, it's a picture that looks deep. What did God feel like at the cross? When Jesus went to Mount Moriah, to Mount Calvary, and there was crucified on the cross, how did God feel? How can you and I know what God feels? We can't unless God tells us. And we can never truly understand, but what God has done in this picture as we gaze into this picture that He paints here in Genesis chapter 22, what God does is put a picture that you and I can understand. Because what we can do is we can understand, we can identify with a very human, very earthy man, Abraham, who loves his son so much. His son that he longed and waited for, the miracle child. We can just begin to imagine the, the, a bit of the horror and a bit of the anguish as he, that, that begins to overwhelm his soul as he ties the hands and feet of Isaac and lays him on the wood and pulls the knife up slowly, preparing to plunge it into the, the chest of the boy that he loves so much. This is the window into the heart of God. 
John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The same phrase God used to describe Isaac. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Abraham, God spared Abraham's son, but He did not spare His own. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush Him, to cause Him to suffer. The Lord makes His life a guilt offering. I could go on to see God has painted a picture so that you can I you and I can just begin to understand the depth of the love of God for you and me and the great sacrifice it was to rescue us from sin. Today we come to the table of communion. It's another picture that God has given to us. This one, to look back, the, the first picture of, of Isaac and Abraham was to look forward to the sacrifice of, cross, of, of Christ on the cross. This picture at communion is for us to look backwards. The other was to look forward, this backwards, to remember what God did when He did not spare His Son. It's interesting, we don't only look at this picture, but we participate in it. We eat of it and we drink of it and there's a good reason for that. Because you see, the only way that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has any value to you or any value to me is when we participate in it. It is not just enough that Jesus died. He has to be, it has to be applied to you. And the reason that we eat and drink of the cup is it's internalizing it, you see. And it's, it's not that we are made right before God. It's not that our sins are forgiven because we eat some cracker or drink some juice. See, we are right before God when we make the Savior our Savior. When Jesus, we apply Jesus' sacrifice to our life, the Bible says that happens when we trust Him as our Savior, when we receive Him as our Lord. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God invites you today to do that. Because there is no other way to God. For if there were another way, Jesus' sacrifice was a total useless failure. For there was some other easy way. But there wasn't. Let's pray. Father, we come here this morning marveling at the picture that You painted before us with Abraham and Isaac. Father, it makes it very clear that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was no accident. It was Your plan, as the Scripture says, before the beginning of time. He was the before the world came to be. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was always Your plan. And that even marvels. That makes us marvel more because You knew all along what it would cost You and yet You made us understanding that we would sin and we needed a Savior. And He chose to be that Savior. 
You did that out of love for us. Father, how can we hold back from loving You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength? So for us this morning as we come to the table and we partake of the bread and of the cup, as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, Lord, may we worship deep from our hearts. May we love You with all we are. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.